0: It is good to be back home. Uh, just, literally, just returned from our Japan trip. Uh, Friday, a little after midnight. And um, man, man, I had a great time. I really, really did. Um, thank the Lord for that trip. But you know, one thing I began to realize, um, and this is this personally, you know, my second time past five years we've been going to Shiogama, my second opportunity to go, and I really realized I am a person who pursues comfort. I really like comfort, you know, and I'll just throw it out there. Hey, the Japan trip, you will eat some amazing food. All right, I had the three, I think, top three bowls of of Japanese ramyun I've ever had in my life. Literally top three. Fresh sushi. Some of you guys are like, what? what kind of mission trip is this? Hey, that's the food you eat. You eat the food you go. You go to Japan, that's what you eat, right? And so, you know, there was barbecue. We had amazing food. But, you know, the things that kind of bugged me, <laughs> like my room, the guy's room, you know, it's, it's like this floor here, and then you got these little things they call tatami mats. Like basically straw mats and then you know they have this thing they call a futon uh, but I want to challenge their uh, use of that word futon cuz in here futon is something I have slept on many times and that's not a futon it's like a folding thing so you fold it out and then you put a little blanket on top and then you have one sheet that you get to use for 10 days Dude, I sweat like crazy my sheet was ruined on day one and they give you a pillowcase. They call it a pillowcase. It is not a pillowcase because it doesn't cover much of the pillow. And, you know, if you're like me, I move around like crazy, and I always wake up with the you know, pillow, all, like my face on the pillow, and it's always the side that's not covered. But the hardest is it's just sitting. You know, there's no couch. There's no chair. There's no bed. It's just a floor. And so after a few days, I just wanted a couch in that room. And in fact, this was hilarious to me. There was one night, I won't name who, but one of our team members, I think had as much as he could take of the floor. And he, he went, and I don't know where he found it, he found a chair. And he found a chair, brought it into our room, and he sat in the chair. And I kept looking at him like, wow, that chair looks so nice. I wanna sit in that chair. And I kept thinking to myself, ah, what am I, what's wrong with me, right? Just sit on the floor. And then um, another team member came into the room and was like, Whoa, where'd you get that chair? And I thought, See, I'm not the only one. And, um, you know, walking, I realized I don't like walking. Uh, we walked everywhere, and I hate walking. And the church is on top of a hill, so walking away from the church was kind of cool. It's beautiful, but walking back to the church was hard. And I realized I don't like humidity because it makes you sweat, makes you sticky. I could, I could go on and on and on and on about some of the discomforts we faced. There. I just kind of say this because, um, and I'll talk more about the trip a little bit later. As if, oh man, it's an amazing experience despite those minor discomforts. But Paul doesn't strike me as the kind of guy I am. Right. Apostle Paul, I don't think, would write about chairs and the joy of a sofa. He writes the few verses we read this morning, the four verses. All right. He writes these verses from prison. When he started the church in Philippi. All right. So he's writing to a church that he helped basically basically church plant. When he started it, there was this huge, and you can read about it in Acts, This huge thing happened where, you know, he basically came with the gospel and it kind of caused a minor uproar in the city. That's my little tease to go read Acts. It's a great story. You know what happened to him because of that? They captured him, they stripped him, they beat him, and they threw him into prison. I wonder how many people we would get to sign up for a mission trip. We said, ah, there's a chance you might get stripped, beaten, and thrown into jail. But as he writes to the Philippian church, they know what he's been through. They've seen it. In fact, if you look at the the last verse of chapter one again, of of our passage, I'm sorry, verse 30, that engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He refers, I think, to that seeing that he, was. They were there. They saw him getting thrown into prison. They saw him getting beat. They realized that. And now they hear that he's in prison because of what he's trying to do, of his continued pursuit of the gospel. Now, he's going to write to them about suffering. So here's a guy who's gone through some real suffering. They know he's gone through suffering, and he's going to write to them about it. And you know how sometimes... Because of someone's life, because of someone's experience, you're more prone to listen to them. For example, no one comes up to me and asks for financial advice. Because why would I ask him about finance? Right? Uh, you, you know, No one's gonna make me a commentator on the NFL Network because they'll look at me like, what does he know about football? On the NFL Network, there's a bunch of ex-players, ex-coaches, people who have intimate knowledge of the game. You're gonna talk to someone who has knowledge of finance for, uh, for Advice on finance. I, I mean, if you're going to come to me, it's, it's probably a question about the Bible or church or you're just, you just want to hang out. Paul, I want to say almost, is like, he's writing about suffering, but people are going to listen to him, especially the church in Philippi, because they saw what he went through. Alright, so that's kind of my introduction to this. Now look at verse 27. Look at, we're just going to look at a few things, that he, uh, just a few verses here. He starts off with only, only, alright? He's introducing, so, so, so far in the letter, chapter 1, he's been very personal, he's been very open. Now here in verse 27, he's going to start writing and talking to the church, and that word only marks, a tr- marks that transition. It's the beginning of maybe you could even say the content proper of his letter, of really what he wants to say. The only, though, it's not uh, like a restrictive only, like that kind of use where he's saying, look, here's the only thing I want you to hear. Here's the only thing I want you to do. Here's the only thing I'm gonna talk about. It's probably more of an emphatic use, like only. Hey, another way of of saying it is like, above all. Hey, here's something I really want you to hear. He's emphasizing what he's about to say. Pay attention, church. Pay attention, Philippi. Pay attention, my brothers, my sisters. Listen to what I've got to say, all right? Here it is, you ready? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of lo- life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have an ESV Bible, there's a footnote there. Doesn't, I don't think it comes out on our phone Bibles. There's a footnote there in the, in, the, in the Bible, and if you look at that footnote, it points out the actual Greek translation of what Paul wrote, and the actual Greek translation is, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens. So the ESV has taken a more uh, interpretive approach to translating the Greek here. What Paul is probably doing, all right, because the people of Philippi were proud of their status. They were citizens of the empire of Rome. They had that citizenship. That wasn't a privilege that was given to to a lot of people. But they, a city in Asia, had that privilege of being citizens of, at that time, probably the greatest empire there in that region, the Roman Empire. And so the word that Paul uses would most likely be a familiar word to them. And it was often used to tell the citizens of of Rome, hey, You are a citizen of this great empire. Live your life as a citizen. Behave as a citizen. Live as someone who's worthy of that citizenship. And it's almost like Paul is taking a a play on that and saying, Look, you are citizens of a more important kingdom. And it's the kingdom defined by the gospel of Christ. It doesn't maybe have natural geographical boundaries, but it's a citizenship that was gained and bought by the blood of Christ. And he tells them, look, whether I come and see you, whether I'm absent, it's kind of like, you know, whether the boss is there or not, right? Some of us, not many of us, but some of us, maybe when the boss is not there, we take a longer lunch. Maybe we leave a little early. Maybe we spend a little more time on Facebook. Maybe more emails. I don't know, whatever, right? But the concept is, look, it doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the time. We are to constantly, every moment and every day, Live as citizens of this kingdom worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now when I hear something like that, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, a lot, a lot of things start coming to my mind. All kinds of thoughts. All right, maybe this is what it means to live as a citizen of the, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Maybe this is what it means. And, and Paul, I think, to his credit, just in case, he fleshes it out starting in the second half of verse 27, just in case we don't understand what that life is or how to live that life. He says, look, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side the faith of the gospel. Okay? If you've made it this far, you haven't zoned out yet, at least you've gotten to the main point of what I want to talk about today standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That this, I would say, and I think, is what Paul would say is that worthy life, is the life of citizenship. That language is kind of maybe an athletic metaphor, but it's also an athletic metaphor that could be used uh, in to, to encourage soldiers going to battle, right? Stand firm, strive, contend, side by side, one spirit, one mind. When I was uh, now, when I was in high school, I I had one uh, very unremarkable year of high school football. Uh, I my excuse is that I was in between. So I wasn't big or strong enough, but I also wasn't fast enough. So I was kind of like small and slow, which is not great for the sport of football. I got to participate, though, in a lot of special teams play. And um, there's one crazy play in football. It, 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 you know, kickoff, kickoff, return. That is, that's really, really crazy. It's fun to watch but it's crazy to be a part of kickoff or kickoff return. Kickoff return is basically when the other team kicks the ball to you and you've got one guy who catches it and tries to run it back as far as he can. Well, everybody else, have you ever wondered what they're doing? All right, so we called it the wedge. So my job was to run back and form exactly what it sounds like, a wedge. Formed a human wedge. And behind our wedge was the guy who caught the ball. He was the returner. And the returner was the fast, big, fast, strong guy. The wedge, we were the idiots. Right? And, you know, our special teams coach instilled one thing in our, in our minds all year. The wedge cannot break. If the wedge breaks, the, ball, the guy with the ball will get tackled. So we can't break. We have to hold. Now, the other team, though, has what they call wedge breakers. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but their sole responsibility is to run as fast and as hard as they can in the least amount of time to run like 50 yards and try to break the wedge by by simply running into it as hard as they can. That's crazy, right? My job is now to meet that guy head on as fast as I can. And often this had disastrous results for me. Because again, I was kind of small and kind of slow. And I remember, it's kind of funny, but I remember because every day in practice, we would have special teams practice, and every day the coach is yelling at us, hold and don't break, hold and don't break, hold and don't break. So every time I was on kickoff return, as I go back and I form the wedge and I see my brothers, you know what's going on in my mind? Hold, don't break. Hold, don't break. As I'm running as fast as I can, hold, don't break. And it's kind of funny because you have a mouthpiece, but you know, you're know you anticipating that collision. So just involuntarily, I start going, and it gets louder and it gets more fierce. If we didn't have a mouthpiece, I'd probably be screaming like, ah, but then your mouthpiece falls out. That's not good. And then, bam. But the whole time, I'm just thinking, hold and don't break. Hold and don't break. And you know, to me, when I hear Paul's language here, really, I can't help but picture the image of a church, right, forming a line and saying, "All right, we're going to stand firm. We're not going to break. We're not going to give in. We're not going to waver." But side by side. We're going to stand firm and we're going to contend. We're going to strive for something. We're going to work at something. And, you know, Paul, when he talks about one spirit and one mind, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not convinced that he's just referring to, like, the human spirit or the mind of, like, let's be one great fellowship. Let's be one great, you know, group of people based on our Friendships and based on this, I, you know, in other parts of Scripture, when he talks about one spirit, he's clearly referring to the spirit of God. First Corinthians twelve thirteen, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and. All were made to drink of one spirit. In Ephesians 2.18, when Paul writes here to the church at Ephesus, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's clearly referring and alluding to the spirit of God. And so I think at the very least, he's alluding here to the spirit of God. And he's saying, in God, in God we're one. In the gospel we're one. We've been made one. So let's stand firm together, side by side. You know, if you look at verse 28, you're like, all right, why do we need to stand firm? Why do we need to strive? Why do we need to contend? Because they had opponents. They had people who were against them. There's two theories. One theory is that they had a group of Philippians in the city who were not happy with this new religion, this new church, this new sect of Judaism maybe that they thought it was, new cult maybe they thought it was. And they were like, look, you guys are citizens of Rome can't act like that, can't live like that, can't behave like that. Another theory is maybe they were upset that they were worshiping this other god, this other Jesus, had this other religion, and it's like, whoa, 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 we're we're part of Rome, we worship Caesar, we honor him. This is the way Roman citizens live. Clearly, though, they had stiff and strong and serious persecution. Persecution. And Paul says to them, don't be frightened by that. Don't be afraid. Now, to me, it's one thing if a man who's never been afraid of something says to me, don't be afraid. And I go, oh, that's easy for you to say. You're not afraid of those things. You know, I, I was talking to a guy who was cutting my hair. He did that BMX race, racing stuff and motocross stuff. And I'm like, man, That's crazy. You spend so much time in the air. I would just think, oh my gosh, I'm coming down fast, hard. What will happen? I'd have a lot of fear. And if he, told, if he said, no, no, I love it. I would just think, yeah, that's just the way you are. Right? If you like to jump out of planes and jump off buildings and all this kind of stuff, i say, ah, oh, you're a little different from me. I don't like that stuff. It's one thing if Paul was like never, ever afraid of anything, never went through any despair, was the super apostle, the super missionary, the super preacher, the super gospel guy who went into any city, any town, didn't care what happened to him, was never afraid. But when you look at Paul, you know, Paul is very open, very honest. There's a point we find him in 1 Corinthians 1. He's describing some of the stuff he went through in Ephesus, Asia, And he says this, look! Starting in verse 8. Just listen to it. Oh, it's up there. Mm. All right, just listen to it. (laughs) We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how Paul describes his heart. He was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. He thought he had received the sentence of death. But in that moment, he says, Ah, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul is clear in his other letters that the reason why he has hope, even though he had faced situations that were utterly hopeless and full of despair and even on the verge of death, the reason why he never gave up hoping and being comforted and being strengthened and maybe even saying I did not fear is because he realized all of those situations were opportunities for him to do what? rest on the strength of God and to stop looking at himself. To not rely upon himself, but to rely upon God. God who is able, God who is capable, God who is faithful, God who is strong, God who is God of hope. You and I have not been asked to do the impossible we've not been asked to solve the impossible dilemma of us being sinful and God being holy. We haven't been asked to cross any kind of sea of death. We haven't been asked to somehow redeem ourselves. We haven't been asked to somehow figure out salvation. We haven't even been asked even to perfectly obey the law and to be righteous in that way and to gain righteousness in that way. In fact, the solution has always been God Himself in presenting the Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel has always been given to us, it's been granted to us. God has solved the problem, and it's always been a situation for us to look at Him and to rely upon Him and not ourselves. And in light of that, Paul says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you have a God who loves you. Don't be afraid because you have a God who cares for you. Don't be afraid because you have a God who died for you. Don't be afraid because you have a God who is alive, who has risen from the dead. Amen? Yeah. Not because you're so great, not because you're so wise, not because we are capable of doing all things or we're a church that has figured things out. No, because of our God, do not be afraid. And then I think in verse 29, and remember how I said I realized I'm a creature of comfort? I feel like here, because I, I've so much pursued comfort, this verse is hard for me. All right? Maybe it's hard for you too. Maybe it was hard for the church in Philippi. For it has been granted to you. All right, granted to you. That, that's language of like receiving a gift. It's not language like, ah, this was your unfortunate fate. This is your, ah, terrible reality. The language here, it has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To the Philippian church, he says, dude, your citizenship, your calling, your gift that's been granted to you, it wasn't just for you to sit there and and believe, Not, not that that's a small thing, but you were given this honor that you would suffer for his sake. Suffer for his sake. Paul here is not saying that suffering by itself is good. I think there has been, in the history of the church, some misunderstanding about suffering. There's been people who pursued suffering for the sake of suffering itself. Denying all kinds of human and worldly pleasures, the most famous Simeon who lived on a pole so that he could deny himself all worldly pleasures. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying suffering somehow purifies us. He's not saying suffering somehow forgives us of our sins. It's not suffering is somehow balancing the sheet. We cause suffering and so now we will suffer. What he's saying though is that, look, there is great blessing and suffering for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Paul is writing here, and Frank Thielman kind of describes it this way. He's writing here, he's encouraging people who stood as a tiny island of commitment to the gospel amid a raging sea of pagan antagonism. It's that picture when you're flying on an airplane and all you see is the ocean. As far as the eye can see, ocean and ocean and ocean, and you fly for hours and all you can still see is ocean and ocean and ocean. And in that vast ocean, there is that tiny island of committed people. That kind of situation is hard for us. The church in 2015 in North Orange County to understand, to relate to. It's hard for us. It's hard for us, uh, the church in 2015 in South Orange County in Irvine to relate to. Maybe we experience a similar situation where maybe you're the only one who's Christian at work. Maybe you're the only one who's Christian amongst your friends. Maybe you're the only Christian uh, amongst all your friends. I don't know. Maybe you're the only one you know that comes to church. But even if that is your reality... You probably don't face a lot of persecution because of your beliefs. Maybe there are some. But if you hey, if your friends persecute you because of your belief, maybe you need new friends. <laughs> right? I don't know. Just thought of mine. So then how do we as a church today hear what Paul is writing about suffering for the sake of the gospel? And 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 Enduring that and persevering that, and even and even saying, "Oh man, that's the life that is worthy of citizenship into this kingdom," you know, of the gospel. So, I, all right, here, here's my thought on this. I was talking to someone in Shigama, Japan. Roughly sixty thousand people lived there. It's a small town. It's not. Tokyo, by right? if you think of Shiogama, like when you think of Tokyo, uh uh-uh. uh, it was this was like the countryside, it's rural. You get off the train stop, and there's nothing there except homes, all right? There's no shops, there's no restaurants. That's really kind of weird in Japan, right? Every train stop usually has a bunch of stuff shops, restaurants, 60,000 people. I was talking to someone who said that they thought that. Maybe 12 Christians exist in Shiugama. I was thinking, wait a minute, I, I saw more people than 12 at church. You know, maybe 50 people there. And oh, they come from Sendai, Tagajo, neighboring areas. Sendai has 1 million people. Shiugama, 12 or whatever. I don't know. Even if that person is wrong and we triple that number, it's 36. Even if we get to five times that number, 60. It's not even 1%, right? That's a church that can relate to being that tiny island of committed people. And I was humbled by, again, you know, it's been a couple years since I went there, but I was humbled again by the pastor there, his wife. You know, the missionaries, Robert and Roberta, Adair from um, Asian Access, Hiromi from Hope Miyagi. I was humbled because for them, they will work for years just to get someone to trust them enough to come to church. Years. I don't know if I have the tenacity or the patience to work in that kind of a situation to simply work at relationship building for years just so that they would trust me enough to show up not even on a sunday on a weekday when a team from america comes to host english day camp i was humbled by it they have given their lives to this process that's taking so long and it's moving so slowly but they are so full of joy because and our, the pastor's wife said this to us. It was so weird. Oh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. I had the chance today to talk to a woman who came to church for the first time because you guys were doing this English camp. That was her joy, the first step. And I realized, you know what? Crossway, we have decided to stand with Shiragama Bible Baptist Church. And if we keep this up for year after year after year, I think this is the picture of Paul telling the church hey, stand firm, hold, don't break, strive, one spirit, one mind, side by side. That if we keep going to Canton, Mississippi, in his steps, Jasper and Carolyn Bacon, that this is a picture of people standing, holding, not breaking, striving, contending. If we continue to send our resources to Ebenezer Theological Seminary in Kerala, India, and Dr. Chaco Thomas, and the amazing group of seminary students there, people who face real persecution because of their faith, sometimes even the threat of death, losing their families, losing their friends for the sake of the gospel. We are standing side by side with them. Amen? So as a church, may we never stop standing firm, striving, contending. If you haven't had a chance yet to go pray, figure it out, go and see with your own eyes. If you can't figure it out, then send someone. Put money out of your bank into someone else's account so that they could go and be your eyes and be your hands and be your feet. Because we've got to do this. This task of living for the sake of the gospel is what Paul, I think, would say is the life worthy of the gospel. Amen? And even while we're here in Brea, California, we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure out what it means as a church, as a group, to be united, standing together. Look, I'm not talking about being just campfire friends. The one thing that I think people desire more than anything is a church that would accept and embrace them as family. And I think that's very important. But we've got to be a family that's doing something. Amen? Striving and contending side by side for the sake of the gospel. This is what we have to be doing. It's hard for me because, like I said, I love comfort. And I hate suffering whether it's for something good or whether it's because I was just an idiot and I brought suffering into my own life. Paul says clearly, we are united because of Christ. Now we must be united for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Uh, we confess that sometimes it's difficult for us to consider what you've put out there in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. That um, suffering for the sake of the gospel is part of the life that is worthy of that gospel. It's part of the citizenship that we've been called to. It's part of that life that is full of joy and so rewarding, but it's something that uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, Lord. It's difficult to pursue. It's difficult to embrace. But I pray, Lord, that you would uh, maybe just help us to realize each and every single one of us in our own time, and in, in, in our own way, Lord, according to your perfect will, Lord, what it means, what it means uh, to live this out. Lord. Uh, we thank you for the opportunities we have to partner with churches that are far away from us. We thank you for their encouragement and the, the Just the challenges, Lord, we receive from being a part of that relationship. We ask that you would continue to help us, Lord, to give, to serve, to send, uh, to be a part of that process, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name.